The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin and I am exhausted. You know why, James? Why is that, Mike? Well, because we talked to four different people today on the podcast for you, the listener. This is going to be a special edition of the podcast because we went around the American League Central, spoke to various personalities who follow their respective clubs, and we got updates on the big league teams of the Twins, Guardians, Royals, and which one's the last one, James? Tigers. Yeah, the first one that we recorded is the one you didn't remember. (laughs) The Tigers kind of stink. The Guardians are kind of good. The Twins don't really have bullpen high leverage arms that can be relied upon and the Royals have a pitching problem. So there's a lot that we learned on the podcast, James, but this is special because we wanted to get ahead of things prior to the amateur draft on July 17th. We wanted to learn about how the other clubs within the division are going about building their franchise as well. Yeah. It's, it seems like twins fans might be as frustrated as white Sox fans. It's fine with me. Like just based off what Seth had to say to us when we talked to him. So, you know, I found that interesting the friggin' Guardians, man. It's just, yeah. we save that for the end because Jeff is very knowledgeable, but I just, man, I, I hate that organization so much because they're <laughs> so good. Yeah, because they're so good. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Alex Duvall from Royals Farm Report uh, will join us. We also talked to Rogelio Castillo for the Tigers Minor League Report. Seth Stowes of Twins Daily will join us. Jeff Ellis, Locked On Guardians, to cover that side of the organization. But James, this is something that I don't know if we had planned on doing in the past, but I'm really glad that we were able to do it. Yeah, I think it helps. I mean, those teams all pick in different spots. They all have different plans, different draft models. That's why I wanted to just, you know, put rumors into action and kind of see and have these guys pick out like, you know, who who do you want your team to select in the first round? Who do you think they'll take that type of stuff? So, you know, hopefully the, uh, the listeners enjoy it as we ramp up here closer to the 2022 amateur draft. 
you want to preview who we have next week on the podcast for our draft preview show? Yes, yeah, so we're we're going Joe Doyle next week of Prospects Live. Those guys are fantastic over there. So you know that that show you know every Tuesday. What? So that's July. That's our July twelfth show in advance of the draft. That'll be more of a just like a draft preview show. Some White Sox, obviously, but just like mostly previewing the the draft as a whole. So look for that. Joe's always really good. If you've been following along on SoxMachine.com and FutureSox.com, you know we're covering the draft up until the date, July 17th. White Sox pick number 26, but we're going to go around the American League Central and learn about the division foes. So stick with us. We have four interviews on tap for this episode of the Future Sox podcast ad-free if you're a patron of SoxMachine.com. So think about signing up there. I'm at Rankin906 on Twitter. James is at JamesFox917. You can follow us at FutureSox and subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. So without further ado, let's get into it. First up, Rogelio Castillo of Tigers Minor League Report and Woodward Sports Network in Detroit. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Excited to welcome on Rogelio Castillo, content producer of Tigers Minor League Report, as well as a beat writer. How about this, Rogelio, at Woodward Sports Detroit? First and foremost, welcome to Future Sox and the Future Sox podcast. We're doing a bit of a series here talking to those representing the various American League Central ball clubs. We want to get your opinion on where the Tigers stand as they select number 12 in the upcoming July draft for Major League Baseball, but also get an update on the Tigers because I'll be honest, as a White Sox fan, I'm a little intimidated by the Detroit Tigers, especially some of the arms they have. Rogelio, tell me a little bit about the Tigers this season, how you feel about uh, the organization moving forward as they try to become competitive again. Well, first and foremost, Michael, James, I'm a big fan of you guys' work. I love the White Sox uh, scene in general. Some really good people. You guys have some really talented groups out there, and you guys are one of them, and thank you for the opportunity. But uh, as far as the Tigers go this season, it has been a very disappointing season. But also, if you really pay attention last year, it was there was a lot of different types of, I don't want to say flukes, but Eric Haas, Akil Badu contributing was a nice was a very nice addition, but the Tigers still lack depth going into the season. And when you start off the year with Riley Green being injured, they immediately trade for Austin Meadows. You knew full well that the farm system wasn't ready to have anybody come up from an outfield standpoint. And I think Al Avila did not do enough of getting another veteran bat, perhaps, or somebody that could be plug in there. And then you, you put a lot of stock into what you get in with Robbie Grossman, a second year at the age of, I believe, 32 I don't know. I just thought that 
the Tigers should have done a little bit more to address the depth. And with Javi Baez, as you guys are familiar with in his days in, in the, on the north side of town, you get inconsistency. And when Tiger fans were, some Tiger fans were like, well, I, I expected this. And some Tiger fans were just thinking it was a consolation prize because they did not fork the money for Carlos Correa. But the, the problems go further than that. I, I, the, the Tigers were not going to compete this season. I'm not sure why people thought that in the first place. I thought there were still too many holes for them to make a run in the AL Central, despite, you know, I, I thought the Twins had a pretty good offseason. I thought the White Sox did enough to address. However, I just thought the Tigers weren't deep enough, and it's showing right now with all the injuries going on and guys like Jonathan Scope vastly underperforming on, on the offensive side of things. So it's been very disappointing to watch. When you go in the press box and you have this uh, tension in the air, like, oh, boy, here we go. And uh, it, it does feel that way every time I go down there. So it sounds like frustration in Detroit. And what's interesting to me, of course, is Tariq Skubal and some of those names, Riley Green, you mentioned, are, are players to look forward to. But it seems to me that there's some tension in Detroit related to the front office situation in Alavila and the roster construction like you're talking about isn't exactly where it should be. And maybe the development of the minor league system is, like you mentioned, going on a bit slower than anticipated. What's the status of Alavila, the general manager of the Tigers? And, and do you have a sense of how the fans feel about his job so far? Well, the fans really want him gone. I mean, when at the beginning of the year, when all the, or excuse me, when the beginning of the season, when all the free agents were signed, everybody's feeling optimistic. But once you saw the Tigers start playing, and start seeing the result of not doing enough, it's enough. I mean, it's technically, depending on who you ask, it's the seventh year of the rebuild. And the only thing that I can say about Avila that is somewhat significant process, or progress rather, is the fact that Detroit for the first time since the 70s, I'm talking the 75-76 draft era, where the Tigers are actually developing pitching. Bro Brisky is a 27th rounder. You have Garrett Hill down in AAA, who's a 26th rounder. You saw that Derek Skubal was a ninth rounder. He was the first pick outside of the fifth round, a lefty more or less, that has started in the Tigers rotation since the early 90s, since Rusty Meacham and Scott Aldred. I'm, I'm throwing back some names there, but that right there is an example. Of, it's not necessarily Al Avila. It's the people underneath him. You saw Ryan Garko now is the VP of player personnel, and you've seen the spring training. We saw gadgets being used, stuff that the Tigers have never used before, but this has been going on for a couple of seasons now, and I think that's helping his case, but I think it's too little too late, in, in my opinion, because he had it, he had the final decision last year in the, in the draft, and he chose a high school pitcher, which we'll talk about a little bit, but I, I think fans have had enough. They, they want to change, and they want to change now, and they're not, they're not going to – there's no more excuses for it. Yeah, so I think you know, we'll get to last year's selection here, and, and that's what makes the Tigers a little bit interesting is just that – you know, I think they could go a lot of different ways. They don't have like this playbook where it's like, oh, college pitching in the first round every year. They've taken lots of different demographics like, you know, over the past few years. So, I mean, I think the bottom line is like even looking at the team, you add Javi Baez and you have some other guys, but like they just they don't have enough players like they don't have enough position players that are, you know, close enough to the majors. I mean, you have Torkelson and Riley Green, but there's still holes in a lot of spots. Do you think that influences what they do? with the 12th overall pick in a couple weeks here. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, I, if, if we're going to look at the system right now as a whole, you have Kerry Carpenter, who's who's doing really well. He's up to, I think, 25 home runs down, but he's a 25, 26-year-old 
graduating out of prospect status, but he's a guy who also strikes out too much, but he's been walking more. But then Colt Keefe, who's down probably till at least maybe possibly August or September with a shoulder injury. Colt Keefe just made the Baseball America's under the radar prospect list, and he's he's had a WRC plus over 100 since he's been in West Michigan and high A. So that's encouraging. And there are some guys down in Lakeland, like Roberto Campos, who's 18. They have some young players, but there's nothing of value until it, it, it's a significant drop-off. I mean, you talk about maybe Jake Holton, but these guys are college bats, and it, it's a lot of, to me at least, in my opinion, 4A players right now. And so I think whatever they pick at 12 is going to have to be a bat because I just – you don't, of course, in the drafts, you don't draft for need. You draft for best player available. And that's understandable, but if they draft somebody, like let's say, for example, if if Gavin Cross is still there or somebody like Dylan Lesko, or not not Dylan Lesko, I'm sorry, Jace Young, which I highly doubt it, but if somebody falls in their lap at 12, take that best position player available and run with it because they they definitely need it. I mean, it's it's good to see progress from guys like Isaac Pacheco, who they picked it later in in the first round last season, but they definitely need some positional players. There's outfield wise, it is barren. Don't even get me started on second base right now. It's it's pretty barren. And for somebody that every day when I'm watching the minor leagues, I'm just I'm looking for something of progress outside of the pitching. And and quite frankly, after after Erie, there's not much. Just minus Lakeland, of course. But that's really about it. So do you have a preference then? Like is it like do you want like whatever whichever college bat I guess falls to twelve, whether that's Jace Young or you know, I don't, I don't know if Gavin Cross will get there. I would think if Gavin Cross gets there, that's that's the pick. But you know, is that your preference? Like, you look up at the board. There's a few college guys that should go in that range. Take the one that's there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like I know Prospects Live picked uh, Daniel Susick, the catcher out of Arizona. I wouldn't mind that pick either because he does fit that kind of profile that Alvila and, and management has, which is a, a player in a big conference kind of situation. If you look at the past history. But a guy I wish hopefully that might fall their lap too is Brooks Lee, the shortstop out of Cali Paul Polly, because I think getting another shortstop shortstop in your system that can play, maybe play multiple positions. I mean, I, I know right now the Tigers have Trey Cruz in low A. He's been hitting better, or excuse me, high A, but he's been hitting better as of late. Another bat like that wouldn't mind. But I honestly, um, t- yeah, exactly it, James. Any bat that can fall right there that the Tigers can have in the next two or three years come up and make a significant impact. Somebody that's athletic, like Colt Keith, for example. Uh, I thought the Tigers, Colt Keith didn't fit their normal draft profile. He was actually somebody, it was a high school bat that there was a lot of, there's a lot of hype around him. And he, he was, I don't, normally the Tigers have done under David Mrowski, the college heavy pitcher, senior, junior, and then they end up using him for trade bait. In this case, the Tigers have seemed to change that a little bit and it's for the better, but it's still a long ways to go. Rogelio, last year, the Tigers picked number three in the amateur draft, and the top three picks went like this. Henry Davis, Jack Leiter, and Jackson Job. Job, a right-handed pitcher out of Oklahoma, a high school player turning 20 later this month, and in his first full professional season, looking like he's handling professional baseball really well. How do you feel about the pick itself? I love pitching, so whenever you get a, a high-caliber arm that looks to be similar to Jackson Job, it gets me optimistic. But given the Tigers' time frame, how did you feel about the pick last year, and how do you feel like Job is progressing as a professional? Well, when the pick came out last year, I, I was talking about this in my podcast, I heard Chris Brown. We were, we were kind of shocked 
but then we were also we weren't because the Tigers tend to try to be the smartest pick in room, i.e. Ray Revere a few years ago. That was, turned out to be a disaster. But in this case, when you saw the slider spin rate, you saw his makeup and his background with his father being a former golfer, I felt better about it. And I still feel pretty good about it because considering how the Tigers are bringing him along slowly but surely, it's almost similar and it fits with the all the ex-Dodgers they have currently right now with Gabe Rivas and Garko right now is that they're bringing him along slowly. He pitched 20 pitches in his last start. And there was probably a reason for that, but they, they seem like they have a plan for him for each time he goes out. And I know that everybody's doing the Marcelo Meyer comparison chart every time he pitches and it gets annoying and I feel bad for him because Job is only pitched really realistically just under a year and a half, two years, I believe just he was a a positional player in high school. So a lot of the fans are being really, I, I think kind of unnecessarily cruel to him with the understanding how this is a guy who's just pretty much brand new to pitching. And I think that you can see some numbers in there. They're encouraging. And the more, the more I see him, the more I read about him, the more I feel. Yeah. uh, Yes. I would love to have a a Meyer type shortstop and make an impact bat right away. Granted. But at the same time, Michael, I'm just like you, I do love pitching. I thought it was just not the right time to get a, a project at the moment. I think it was just bad. If it was, if you went later in the first round, let's say if it was, the other way around, that I mean, I think Tiger fans would feel a lot better if it was Ty Madden that went that high, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, either way, I just think that this is going to take some time, and hopefully people can be patient with it. But right now, Tiger fans are losing all sorts of patience. But Job, I think he'll be fine. Um, but it's going to be three or four years away before he we, we see him in Detroit. That's the thing. It's just, you know, he might have been the best player at the time, but it you know, it's just weird. I think it was weird that they went with a high school pitcher just because like even like it's three and a half years away. So my my last one for you is about another high school pitcher who is in this year's class. It's Brock Porter. He's another he's a Michigan uh, prep. You know, there's been some rumblings that Al Avila has been in to see him a lot. Um, he's been linked to other teams, not so much the Tigers. Any chance they uh, they do it again at 12 with with Brock Porter? <sighs> You know, I, I went to go see a start of his because a, a good friend of mine, Brian Sikowski of Perfect Game, was a coach of his last season. And I, Brian was like, you should come out and see this kid. And, and Orchard Lake St. Mary's is not too far from my house. So I went and there was, I'm not kidding, guys, there was about 19 to 20 scouts there. And he started against a, t- uh, a team, Capital Central, which was not as good. But they were able to just, they were able to hang in before Moreau St. Mary's took over. But or excuse me, Orchard Lake St. Mary's took over. But as far as his pitching makeup goes, I mean, he was throwing 95, 96 with no problem. And then about the second, third inning, he was docked down to 92, 93 with movement. And the league he plays in is three balls, two strikes. So it's a little different. But I thought that he had a really good live arm. However, he still has to develop a third pitch. And if the Tigers decide, the Tigers have been good, have been developing pitching, like we've noticed with Bo Brisky, a 27th rounder, and what I mentioned earlier. But I would pass. I mean, honestly, at, at this point, the Tigers have shown the ability to develop any type of pitching right now. Why waste it? Uh, not, I don't want to say waste, but just let somebody else have it. I mean, I think it, even we have, or one of our podcast partners wants to have uh, Kumar drafted. And I was like, why? I mean, we have Ty, the Tigers have Ty Madden right now. So what would be the point of that? But anyway, I think if he goes to some, I mean, I think the Mets would be a perfect landing spot for him. I think somebody else that can 
really knew the pitching, but I think the Tigers should pass. I mean, if he, if, if Vila has been in to see him a lot, that also is a red flag to me that they're more likely. It sounds like they might take him if that's the case, but I honestly, guys, I just think the Tigers are better off going in a different direction this year. That's just my opinion because I think with Chris Fetter and the development they have in the pitching staff right now with what we've seen in Toledo and Erie, even in, in Lakeland right now as well, the Tigers can develop pitching, and it seems like it doesn't matter what round they, they draft them in. So that to me is that's huge progress. All right, last one before we let you go. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who do they end up with? I know it's the 12th pick. You're you're probably going to be wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'm and I'm perfectly fine being wrong with it. But if if he lands there, I look. I'm going to just say Brooks Lee. Of, I look if the Tigers if the Tigers can grab Brooks Lee, I would take him. I'd be fine with that. that Shortstop I, Cal Poly. Yeah, yeah, that's who I want. I, that's who I want. That's who I want to go with. So that's that would be my pick, but. More likely, it's gonna be it's gonna be a pitcher. I hope not. But it, <laughs> honestly, honestly, it's so it's so uh, unpredictable. But yeah, yeah if, if the the more intel I get, the more it's, it's just baseball. America's projected two pitchers, and yeah. So, but that's who I would pick. Brooks Lee. That yep, the shortstop out of Cal Poly. <laughs> just hearing you pleading the Tigers to not take a pitcher. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it goes, right? <laughs> Rogelio Castillo, thanks so much for joining us on the Future Sox podcast. You guys are awesome. Thanks so much for the invite. Follow Rogelio Castillo at ROG Cast Baseball. He's content producer for Tigers, a minor league report, as well as a beat writer for Woodward Sports. We'll take a break. When we come back, we have more to come going around the American League Central here on the Future Sox podcast. We're back now with another edition of, or I should say, another segment of Around the American League Central here prior to the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft. July 17th is when it begins. Our next guest is Alex Duvall of RoyalsFarmReport.com at RoyalsFarm on Twitter. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to jump on the Future Sox podcast. Got so many questions. It's not often we get uh, outside perspective from teams around the Central, so I'm excited to learn more about the Royals. Tell me a little bit about Brady Singer. (laughs) So Brady Singer is like the the epitome of I think what is going wrong with 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 the Royals pitching development at the moment and I think it it stems from like the Royals not making pitchers use pitches that are they're gonna have to need to be effective I think Eno Saris wrote a piece about Jonathan Heasley recently about how Heasley is a really good slider in fact it's probably his best pitch and he throws it the least often of all his pitches right and so Brady Singer didn't have a changeup when he came up and he all of a sudden like needs his changeup and they had to send him back down to the minor leagues after a year and a half in the big leagues to work on a changeup. It was just like the weirdest thing, but he is like, I think more talented than people give him credit for like his fastball slider when he's in the zone are just unhittable, but it's, it's such a weird thing. And I think it's, you know, very emblematic of the rest of the Royals problems, but uh, I guess we'll see. So, Alex, you know, thanks for joining us. The The Royals have three picks in the top 50. They pick at nine, they pick at 35, they pick again at 49. You're used to it with all the comp picks, you know, that they, they normally get. You know, they're also tough to predict because over the past few drafts, they've they've done college pitcher. You know, last year they went Frank Mazzucato, which is like completely off the board, but then that allowed them to, you know, add more high school talent throughout. What are What are you expecting this time? I've seen them link to... Lots of different players, but what are you, what are you thinking, you know, at nine? And then, you know, do you have any names for pushing down the board, potentially 35 and 49? 
Yeah, so I expect nothing. I was joking um, on our podcast recently that, you know, Brock Porter and Justin Crawford have been mocked to the Royals at number nine a lot. And that makes me really confident that that's not who the Royals are going to wind up picking. The Royals have been really hard to peg in recent years. Like the Bobby Witt Jr. pick was was a, was a slam dunk, right? That was obvious. That was very clearly the right pick. But I think the rest of their picks have been very off the wall, and they're very hard to predict. And I think the the most important thing to remember with the Royals in, in terms of unpredictability is that this is going to be the first year that J.J. Piccolo is the general manager for the draft. So I honestly, and, and I, I hope it doesn't sound like a cop-out, I don't expect anything. And I think that's the beauty of where the Royals are is they can leverage some of that, you know, that wild card into an under slot if they want at number nine. So if they took Justin Crawford and saved, you know, 20% of their slot bonus, I wouldn't be surprised. If they took a Chase DeLauder from James Madison, that wouldn't surprise me. But I think no matter what they do with the ninth overall pick, no matter if it's a college bat or a high school arm, they've got to get some college bats in the system. You know, they recently graduated Bobby Witt Jr., MJ Melendez, and Vinny Pasquantino to the big leagues. Their next two best offensive prospects, maybe three, two of the three, are in AAA. Nick Lofton is in AA. Looks like he could be in AAA soon. They don't really have a ton of thump in the A-ball teams. And so if I were the Royals, I would invest at least my second, third, and fourth picks in some college bats, get some guys down there at the low A ranks, the high A ranks. Maybe you can get a Dylan Beavers to fall to 35. If Ivan Melendez is there, he'd be my pick at 35. But they really need an influx of talent in those A-ball teams. And there's a lot of college hitters that I think are going to fall out of the first round that, that anybody could have, you know, late late in the draft. So the Royals are in a weird spot where a lot of their young prospects that are going to help the Bobby Witt Jr. wave into the playoffs if they make it are getting close, and they really need to refill the lower ranks of their system. But the the biggest problem they're going to face is. You know, they have all these bats, and if they can't find the pitching, it's not going to matter. So it's it's a really weird spot for the Royals. So, you know, they're, they're going to be the wild card of the draft. I legitimately think we could see anything from a chalk pick like Jacob Berry to a wild Frank Mazzucato-like pick like they made in 2021. Do you have a preference or no? Like if the top, say that top seven kind of goes like as everybody thinks it is, you're going to have your pick of the guys that you've seen. Is it Crawford that you would prefer or do you not really, you're, you're open to seeing, you know, what they do with like the subsequent picks after that? Yeah, I'm not a big Justin Crawford fan. I think I would go Jace Young or Chase DeLauder, Jacob Berry, one of those three college bats. It looks like Minnesota's big into Gavin Cross and I'm, I'm sure you'll have a twins guest on and you can ask them, but it looks like they're into Gavin Cross a bit, so I, I don't know that he'll be there. But if he's there, you know, one of those four college bats. I think the Royals have done a really good job developing their hitters recently, and it's like they're they're playing handicapped because they're, they're the best thing they do in the minors is develop hitters, and yet they keep drafting, like, prep arms. And it's like, I, I don't understand necessarily the, the theory behind that, so... 
if I were them, I would draft the best college hitter available, whoever that is on their board, whether it's Young, Barry, DeLotter, or Cross, and then develop them into a middle-of-the-lineup bat. And if you have too many of those guys when they get up, trade one. Go get an arm that's already been developed and is established. So I think it's really interesting. I think they could go a few different ways, but my preference is definitely – uh, whoever the best college bat on their board is, because I think I think the college bats that will be there are too good to pass up on, quite frankly. So you think they're like their pitching issues are systemic? Like it, it's not really necessarily the guys they've taken. It's something structural with how they teach or something along those lines. Because I mean, before, what prior to Wit, that was the year that they took Singer and like four other college starters, right? That's with Daniel Lynch and all those guys. Like they've they've added pitchers, but you're right, like they haven't you know, they haven't really had much success at the big league level. So you think that's like something just like an, a, is that like a teaching or infrastructure issue more so than like the guys that they've taken consistently? For sure. And I think the one, the one thing I try to tell our fans about, and, and it's, it's broad brushstroke, right? There's, it's not inherently scientific, but you can judge the team's ability to scout pitchers by their performance in the minor leagues. So you take a guy like Daniel Lynch, the 34th overall pick, was not very good at Virginia. They get him into the system, and he was immediately better because he got away from the the Cavalier crouch at Virginia, right? So he comes into the system, and he dominates minor league baseball. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys followed it at all, but he gets to the major leagues last year, and his first three outings were a disaster because he was tipping his pitches. And I mean, pretty clearly tipping his pitches. So they send him back down. He fixes some things. They bring him back up. And he's been fine. Not great since. Jackson Kowar, last year at the beginning of AAA, was pretty clearly the best pitching prospect in all of AAA. He gets up. He has two bad outings. They send him right back down. It was such like a weird a weird thing that happened to a lot of these guys. And and I think to the point is every single pitcher they drafted has had a ton of success in the minors. You know, we're not talking about a guy who skated through. We're talking about five guys they drafted in 2018 who dominated every level of minor league baseball. And then they get to the big leagues and all of a sudden it's crash and burn. Now, you know, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. And I think it's really important to understand that sometimes Pitching prospects just don't work out. It happens. But we're talking about five different pitchers that they've brought up and Carlos Hernandez, who was an international signing, who dominated minor league baseball. They get to the major leagues and then it's crash and burn. So, you know, I don't I don't know that it's inherently like obvious that it's systemic if you're an, an outsider, but I think if you watch the Royals enough and you know, I think you can look at it and go, look, it's it's you know, they're, they're clearly trying. They've invested a ton into these pitchers. And I think the scouting department to give them some credit has done a good job identifying guys that they can bring in. Jonathan Boland was a second round pick out of Memphis. They signed him for like half his slot value because they were trying to save money for Coar and Lynch. And he might be the best of the bunch. I mean, that is a lot of that is scouting, but the development piece comes in when you get to the big leagues. So, you know, all of these guys did great their whole minor league career, they get to the big leagues and all of a sudden they have issues that were never issues. Jackson Kowar couldn't locate his fastball to save his life in the big leagues. That was never an issue for him in the minor leagues. It's like, it's like they're brand new issues. So 
I don't really know how to explain the problems specifically, but I think it's pretty clear that they have a good process in mind during the draft. But if you can't develop those guys to their full, you know, their full ability, then it really doesn't matter. And you should probably focus on drafting hitters for the time being. Alex, I can feel the frustration, the passion coming from that answer. Now, I have a question related to a recent move that the Royals made in dealing Carlos Santana. And as a result, you mentioned him a little bit earlier in our interview here. Vinny Pasquantino is up and ranked the number three overall prospect in the Royals system, according to MLB Pipeline. What do you like about him so far? And how do you believe the Royals are going to implement him as a big leaguer now that he's making his debut? Dude, he is incredible. He is every level of minor league baseball, I think. I'm trying to think about rookie ball here for a second. But for sure, at high A, double A, and triple A, he had more walks than strikeouts. Actually, I'm sorry, at double A, he had the exact same number. He had in a double A season, half a double A season, I should say, 64 extra base hits, 64 walks, 64 strikeouts. It is really hard to strike him out and he hits the ball with authority. Like he is legitimately a top 100 prospect despite having little to no value anywhere away from the plate because he's going to be on base a ton. He's going to hit his fair share of home runs. He'll hit a ton of doubles. And I think the the thing with him is he has such a good head on his shoulders that the processes, he doesn't get away from his process when he does slump and struggle. I remember to start high A last season, he was hitting a buck 80 through like a month, but his walk rate was almost double his strikeout rate. And he was hitting for a ton of power. He was just getting kind of unlucky and grounding into the shift a little bit. And I tweeted something out at the time like, Hey, don't give up on this guy yet because all of the peripheral numbers are there. And you know, this kid's going to be a stud. And then he goes on a tear. They promote him to double a, and he just kept hitting they promoted him to AAA this season, and he didn't slow down. And the Royals were like, well, yeah, you know, we want to get him 500 at-bats, you know, in the upper levels before we call him up. He's just not quite ready. And everybody and their mom was like, oh, shut up. Yes, he is. You just got to get rid of Santana. And then as soon, to their credit, as soon as they were able to trade Carlos Santana, they called him right up. There was no hesitation. They tweeted out the Carlos Santana trade. Two minutes later, they tweet out that Vinny was promoted. But I think it was Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs. He t- he, his write-up for Vinny was that he has, uh, there are missile defense systems with less precision uh, because of the way he commands the strike zone. And, you know, I really think he's going to be an all-star caliber hitter. And does he provide much value elsewhere? No, but he's going to hit so well, walk, not strike out, that it's just not going to matter. Um You know, I don't think he'll hit like 30 home runs every year like Anthony Rizzo, but a lot of his game is very similar to Rizzo in that way. Boy, uh, that's great to hear as a Sox fan. Looking (laughs) forward to facing him a lot. Uh, No, that's great stuff, Alex. Last one before we let you go. Really appreciate the time. Talked about the draft and sitting here thinking about the big league club. What do you think the timeline is for the Royals to be competitive again? I know it's hard to say, but given the draft strategy over recent years, developmental paths and even and too, I wanted to ask you about Aldalberto Mondesi as well. I mean that somebody who talk about burst on the scene and then sh- I know he's injured now on the sixty day, but 
it, it just seems like he's been kind of fizzled out ever since. Uh, if you could go back and, and let me know how the, the Royals are going to get to the point where they can win another World Series, that'd be great. But also touch on Mondesi. I'm, I'm curious about him as a player. Yeah, I think let's start with Mondesi and he's always hurt. Like his inability to stay on the field is it rivals Byron Buxton for like the craziest thing you'll see in terms of his, in terms of injury history in in major league baseball cannot physically cannot stay on the field. I remember last year they brought him up after he'd been injured and they put him on the field and he hit like an MVP candidate for like a week and then he was hurt again and he didn't play. And it was just like, what the hell? And so, you know, talent wise, he's probably the fastest guy in the game he has an insane amount of raw power, like 450 foot home run. And you just go, holy cow. He didn't even try to hit the ball. Like, I mean, the, the talent is ridiculous. He has absolutely no approach. It is Javi Baez levels of swing for the fence every time and just pray you hit something. So there's no approach, but the tools are so loud. It really doesn't matter because if he's healthy, he is a three to four win player because he's a gold glove defender at shortstop, he'll steal 50 bags and hit 20 home runs. Like, I mean, there's, there aren't 10 players capable of what he's capable of in major league baseball. He just a is going to strike out a ton and B cannot stay on the field to save his life. So I think when you're evaluating the Royals, like if the Royals were able to compete for that third wild card spot in 2023, the only way it's possible is if you have Mondesi healthy, but it also wouldn't surprise me. Like he's just that talented. So the Royals are close. Their offense is actually going to be pretty good by the middle of next season because they'll have in theory, all of their young prospects up plus Salvador Perez plus Hunter Dozier, who's been fine. And the pitching is just, kind of the question mark right now you know the bullpen they've got a few pieces in the back of a bullpen who can close down a game pretty automatically it doesn't have a ton of depth but they have next to no starting pitching right now brad keller is very hit and miss zach granke's on a one-year deal none of the young pitchers have proven anything at the big league level so you know the pitching staff can't get a lot worse in fact early on they were historically awful so if the pitching staff improves, and, and I not like I expect them to improve based on anything we've seen, mostly just from positive regression, like it can't get worse. The pitching staff has almost been as bad as you can be. So any positive regression there, along with the experience of the young hitters, and this team could be fun to watch next year. And would it surprise me if they were above 500? No, but you have to have Salvador Perez healthy. Mondesi has to be on the field in some capacity. And you have to have some improvement from your pitchers. But right now, we just haven't seen any evidence to suggest the pitching staff has shown signs for positive regression. Alex, great stuff. Really insightful. Appreciate everything. You're making me want to be a Royals fan. All of this is so interesting to follow. I appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely, man. I appreciate you having me on. That's Alex Duvall of Royals Farm Report. Follow them at Royals Farm on Twitter. Royals right there. We just had the Tigers as well. We're going to preview the Twins and the Guardians coming up. Don't go anywhere. You'll listen to the Future Sox podcast. Thanks for sticking around in this episode of the Future Sox podcast. Now is the Minnesota Twins version of our Around the American League Central. As Seth Stowes of Twins Daily joins us. Seth, so good to talk to you. Really appreciate you jumping on. You can follow Seth at 
Seth tweets. He's all over the Twins season and you know a diehard Twins fan, of course, as we get familiar with Minnesota. Here's where I want to start with you, Seth. Right now, the Twins in first place in the American League Central. I'm not a huge fan of the organization. I'll be honest with you as a White Sox fan because <laughs> I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of seeing the Minnesota Twins succeed. But this was a rather interesting offseason for you. you. traded Josh Donaldson, and I like Gio Urshela. That's a nice player to have. Carlos Correa, we don't know the future about his standing with the organization considering how his signing went down last year. Just a lot of interesting names. I think the lineup is strong. This is a team that, because of their lineup, can compete, and they have some interesting names within the rotation. But the bullpen, the bullpen's been an issue all season long. With all that being said, Seth, do you think this Twins team can take the division and compete for a World Series this season? And how do you think they'll approach the deadline? Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on, you guys. It's a lot of fun to talk and, and get some competitor perspective as well. So, um, you know, it has been uh, – it was certainly a, a strange off season with the, the lockout and all, and uh, the Twins were very much busy, like you mentioned, uh, in the couple of weeks before spring training started, not only with the Correa signing, but you mentioned the Josh Donaldson uh trade for Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela. I mean, they signed a few guys, and it was very busy. Uh, It's surprising they got off to a fast start. You know, they've certainly hit some road bumps, but they've been getting good pitching, which I think surprised a lot of people. Uh, But at some point, the bullpen became uh, uh, what we expected the bullpen to be, which is not a lot of depth, not a lot of confidence in a lot of guys, and certainly the four blown saves or four bullpen implosions against Cleveland in the last two weeks uh, has been painful. It's been painful to watch. So I do think this team can continue to compete. I think the offense is strong. Uh, I think their starting pitchers are good to middle of the pack um, if they're healthy, which has certainly been an issue. Uh, but as you mentioned, related to the, the trade deadline, it's hard to imagine that they don't go out there and get a couple of good bullpen arms, guys that are reliable. Right now they have Yon Duran and Griffin Jacks uh, and maybe Caleb Thielbar that are three guys that they can rely on. But after that, it's question mark after question mark, starting with guys like Tyler Duffy and Emilio Pagan, who have certainly had success in the big leagues before. And, and obviously I think the Twins would love if they got back to that, but they definitely need to – to add some depth to that uh, the bullpen. Related to pitching, I mean, this is a story that I've never seen before. Wes Johnson decides to leave the Minnesota Twins in favor of Louisiana State University. Where did that come from? Why do you think he left? And what are your general feelings about the move uh, as Wes Johnson just kind of in the middle of the season packed up and left? Yeah, uh, it was shocking, the timing of it. Uh, just last Sunday after a game, news kind of broke that that would happen. And he did stay with the team through the Cleveland series. But now Pete Mackey is taking over as pitching coach as uh, Wes Johnson heads to LSU. Um, I think multiple things. Obviously, uh, I feel like it came out of nowhere. And I think it happened pretty quickly. Um, Johnson's been recruited by college teams over the last couple of seasons as well, but turned them down, including LSU. But I think they just offered him more money than he's making with the Twins. And, and if I've read correctly, college you know, assistant or pitching coach, hitting coach, they can make uh, as much or more than the major league hitting coaches or pitching coaches. So uh, he's going to actually make more money with 
LSU have more opportunities for incentives and things like that. Less travel, less games, less all of that. So probably a good move for him, uh, you know, just his family and all that kind of stuff. But again, kind of came out of nowhere. I'm sure he had a deadline where he just had to make a decision because LSU needs a decision so that they can go recruit. And man, what a great recruiting tool for LSU uh, going into homes of of top uh, college or top high school pitchers and being able to say, yeah, I was a four years uh, pitching coach in the big leagues and, and we did pretty well. So, um, you know, it's an interesting move. I think he probably feels he had to make it. The timing is weird, but um, I mean, ultimately I think he's set a lot of things in motion uh, along with Derek Falvey, uh, the team's president of baseball operations to, um, to have things in place throughout the system, throughout the organization, in terms of analytics, uh, technology, uh, and philosophy to hopefully keep what Wes Johnson was encouraging uh, going uh, forward. Seth, looking at this upcoming draft, the Twins, you know, they choose eighth overall in the first round. They also pick at 48 and 68. They forfeited their third round pick um, to sign Carlos Correa, but, you know, you still have three in the top 70 with a pretty big bonus pool. That's that's pretty good. You know, the Twins, they've kind of been all over the place in the draft recently. You know, they've that front office has always liked power, but they went with a high school pitcher in the first round last year, and they've traded that high school pitcher since to Cincinnati. So what are you seeing or hearing or thinking for, you know, the eighth overall pick coming up here in a couple of weeks? Is it just as simple as, you know, the, the college bat that that is still left? At that point, pick an eighth um, between Gavin Cross and there's Jacob Berry at LSU, or do you think maybe they go uh, somewhere different at that point? I think one thing that this group has has done uh, over the last 10 to 15 years is when they have a pick in the top 10, they go with upside in terms of usually hitters. Um, you know, Obviously, they took Royce Lewis, number one. They took Keone Cavaco uh, early in the teens. Uh, guys like Aaron Hicks, uh, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. So they really like those tools, the athletic uh, high school outfielders. When they've drafted late in the first round and early in the early in the second round, then they've gone with the more power bats, the Aaron Sabato, Matt Walner, Brent Rooker, uh, those types. Um, pitchers, a little more difficult to see, to read how they how they go with that. So honestly, I think. If uh, if guys like uh, Cam Collier, uh, Elijah Green, Jamar Johnson, if somehow those guys fall to number eight, I think that's an easy choice for them. Uh, but like you mentioned, guys like uh, Barry Parada, the catcher out of Georgia Tech, uh, I think those are candidates as well. You know, I mean, those top eight, if any of them, or the top seven, if any of them fall to eight, I think they'll jump all, all over that. But I think, you know, if they are looking for a pitcher, you know, there are a few. I think Connor, uh, is it Prilip, Prelip, um, hasn't done a lot of pitching, but probably has the highest upside ceiling for a college pitcher. Uh, so I think that's a possibility as well. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you is, you know, like in that top group, it seems like the guy that's most likely to fall is Isaiah Green, just for whatever reason, you know, you, you kind of indicate you think they would take him if he fell there I, I just seen drafts where it's like he falls to the Royals or he like falls to the Mets somehow you don't really see the other guys falling that that far but that would match like their typical kind of like 
swooping in and grabbing upside if he were to fall. 100%. And, and they've always been pretty patient with with that type of toolsy athletic type. And we saw that going back to, you know, Torrey Hunter and Michael Kadai are good athletes out of high school and they were patient. They, you know, obviously took a little longer to get to the big leagues, but when they got there, they went up and down a few times, but became, you know, essentially twins hall of famers. And, um, you know, guys like Hicks, Ben Revere, you know, a lot of examples of that. So Elijah Green probably has, as much power upside as anyone in the in the draft uh, coming out of high school. A lot of swing and miss, but, you know, again, if they can somehow corral that a little bit, um, you know, I, I just think that kind of athleticism would be hard to pass by. So if the top seven kind of holds where, you know, those top high school bats are gone and say like Brooks Lee and, and Parada are both gone too, and you're sitting there staring at, Jacob Berry, Gavin Cross, and then any of the pitchers. Do you have a preference at that point? What are you What are you like hoping that they do if that's if it's pretty much chalk before them? You know, my personal opinion would be take high upside pitching, which is again the Connor Prelip, and you know maybe even a guy like you know Brock Porter. Even you go to the high school guys like Brandon Barrera, Dylan Lesko, another Tommy John guy. Um, you can go with the upside, but I think it'd also be really hard not to take Jacob Berry, even though most people think he's probably a DH down the line. That kind of bat is really exciting. So I, I think they'd have a hard time passing on a guy that could hit like that. Last thing for me, and then, you know, Michael take over with what he's going to end with. But, you know, one of our uh, dear friends on this podcast was uh, Kevin Goldstein. He used to, you yeah. know, he came on, he came on frequently with us and, as unfortunate as it was for us, like that he left for the Minnesota twins. Like we, we were happy for him. What is, uh, what's Kevin Goldstein doing and how is it, I guess, what have you heard about just like how that's, that transition's been into the twins front office so far? Yeah, I haven't really heard a lot other than, you know, he's going to be just kind of an advisory role uh, in, in player development. Uh, you know, he did a lot of those same things with the Astros and obviously his time at, baseball prospectus and other places have, have prepared him for this. And I think the twins are just happy to get a guy with that kind of background into the system and, and feed ideas off of him and let him see players and all those things. Uh, you know, I think uh, the more evaluation you can get internally that you feel confident in the better. And uh, you know, there's a reason you guys had confidence and enjoyed having him on because he's, he's as good as it gets. So, Seth, I want to ask you about Royce Lewis, number one overall pick in 2017 of the Twins. How does the organization feel like he's progressing, and how do you feel about Royce as uh, maybe a centerpiece for the Twins moving forward? Well, I mean, I'm I'm as big a backer of Royce Lewis because uh, not only is he great talent, athlete, all that good stuff, just an amazing person, great to talk to all the time, always uh, energetic, positive, all those good things. Um, at the same time, we saw in about 11 or 12 games in the big leagues what his talent level is. He had, I think, four doubles and a couple of home runs and played a good shortstop. Uh, the talent is there. Even though he missed the 2020 season like everybody, he was at the alternate site rather than you know in playing games. And then he had the torn ACL that caused him to miss the entire 2021 season. But he was off to a great start with AAA, got an opportunity in the big leagues, 
got another opportunity when there was another injury. And unfortunately, three innings into that, he got hurt and tore his ACL again. So he's probably out until next, you know, May, June, somewhere in that timeline. But, uh, you know, if there's one thing, he's still young. Uh, the athleticism is there, speed, power, and uh, mental portion of the game. Uh, he's going to be all right. And I think uh, he's a guy that can be absolutely a cornerstone uh, for the Twins for a long time. So, Seth, as we let you go, are you threatened by the White Sox <laughs> from the outside looking in? Are you thinking that this team can come back and challenge the AL Central lead? Yeah, honestly, the, the bigger surprises as we're halfway through the season is that they really haven't even had a a run to this point. I just think they've got such talent. I know when the Twins played them earlier, Tim Anderson was going through his uh, defensive struggles that actually, I think, helped the Twins win at least one or two of those games. Uh, but when you've got the talent, you know, of Abreu, Anderson, um, you know, Robert, uh, Jimenez, uh, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And then getting guys back like Giolito and Lance Lynn and obviously getting Liam Hendricks, uh, who is another fantastic person. I, I got to know him during his time with the Twins minor league system. Um, getting him back is big as well. So I, I just think they have way too much talent to just not make a run here at some point. So to me, I... I do think the Twins have a lot of talent. Um, I think the uh, Guardians are are kind of a scrappy team that will take advantage of, of any opportunities, and they have a very strong uh, bullpen. Uh, but I still think the White Sox are, if not maybe not the team to beat at this point, but they're the team I would be most concerned about. All right. Maybe, boy, we needed a little bit of that, uh, to be honest with you. <laughs> Nothing like we're, talking to a Twins writer to, to gain a little confidence about I know. the White Sox, right? That's where we're at this year, man. It's It's been something over the last two seasons, to be honest with you. But, Seth, you provided great content. Thanks for all the insight learned about the Minnesota Twins. Appreciate you taking the time to jump on with us on the Future Sox podcast. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again for having me on, and I uh, look forward to maybe doing it again. Oh, for sure. We'll be bugging you. That's Seth Stowes <laughs> at Seth Tweets on Twitter. And you can also follow Twins Daily where he contributes his work at Twins Daily. That's Seth Stowes. We'll be back with our final interview on around the American League Central as we prepare for the 2022 Major League Baseball Draft. Don't go anywhere. Final segment of our Around the American League Central version of the podcast here on the Future Sox podcast. Welcoming on Jeff Ellis at Jeff MLB Draft on Twitter. He is the host on Locked on Guardians. Jeff, good to talk to you again, sir. I can't stand your Guardians. No, I get it. Uh, it's. I feel like I wouldn't love this team if I wasn't a fan of them. I mean, you at least have to have loved the last week, right? Watching what they did to the Twins with the back-to-back walk-offs. They can't can't yeah, even sure. the, the White Sox fans enjoy that? No, because it was by a guy who had us feeling that same way as the Twins did. So, you know what? Whatever. We're moving on because this Guardians team going into the season, I don't know what the expectations were in Cleveland, but this rotation, like currently as we look at it, Shane Bieber, Aaron Savali, Zach Plisa, Cal Quantrill. I was a huge fan of Quantrill in, in San Diego. Tristan McKenzie is young and electric, a guy that they developed, plus their bullpen. Emmanuel Classe is somebody who has stuff that I've never seen before. And then you look at the lineup, they're just, they're getting contributions obviously from Jose Ramirez who's an all-star we talked a little bit briefly though before recording that he's been struggling lately 
the rest of the lineup is just getting it done, picking up the baseball, and just playing a clean style of the game. And that's why they're right there in the mix. Now, I don't know, Jeff, how you felt going into the season about this team, but it seems like they're for real. What do you feel like the Guardians can do this season? So like we did our whole like locked on round table and I was just like, everyone's sleeping on this team. I understand everyone got better, but the Guardians did as well. Like they didn't lose anything. They were the same team from a year ago that was about 500. And that team that was 500 last year had to have JC Mejia do like 10, 15 starts. Uh, they didn't have any pitching depth. Bieber missed 60% of the year. Savala, like everybody was hurt. Like they, they were overconfident and had uh, Quantrell start the year in the pen. So he didn't even start the year as a starter. Uh, McKenzie spent a lot of time in AAA. He was up and down. So this was a team that finished close to 500 and you're counting on better health because it's impossible for it to be worse. And then uh, young players are starting to come to the big leagues. And last year's outfield, the players who got the three most played appearances for the Cleveland Guardians were Bradley Zimmer, Harold Ramirez, and Eddie Rosario, who they traded midseason. And Eddie just quit. Like, it was very easy to see he quit on that team. Uh, so it's just having young players come up. Like, I thought this was a team that people were not, you know, I didn't necessarily think they were going to be a wild card contender or anything like that. But I thought anyone who's calling for them to finish last in the division is just not tracking things enough, in my opinion. Because I thought, hey, they won 80 games. They're going to be healthier and I knew Stephen Kwan would be at least like a two-win player, which when you look at what they've had in the outfield, that's a massive improvement that they had all of these young guys sitting in AAA just a step away. So I think they were slept on a little bit. I still don't know if they're going to be a team that pushes for the wild card the whole year. But, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about 40-man stuff later. But with just the way their 40-man set up, it's like they're the youngest team in baseball for the second year in a row. Almost none of their big-name prospects have hit the big leagues yet. And they are primed to go out and add. I mean, interestingly enough, maybe their biggest need after catcher is a starting pitcher right now. So, you know, Cleveland's notoriously, I think, pretty good at drafting. That front office is really good. You know, they, they go in different directions, though, that sometimes puzzle people and they use the model. So can you just like for the listeners, can you briefly like explain that mo- their age based model that they they mm-hmm. kind of use and prioritize when they're selecting prospects? So it's, it's funny, like how much of a change that is. Like one of my, back when I was writing at Scout, I did a whole like piece my first year there. It was like 2012 or 13. And it's like the worst teams by drafting who had accumulated the least war were uh, bottom three. The worst was the Reds, then the Indians, then the Yankees. They were the Indians then, so that's for the piece. But yeah, they've, they've certainly jumped and changed and they do do a lot of age-based stuff where the idea that, uh, you know, if a player is younger and... For instance, like Cam Collier at this past year, if uh, if anyone's, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about draft stuff. The fact that as a, a guy who's supposed to be a junior in high school, he was playing against 20 year olds and playing well. There's more value in that than, say, like Sonny Dechara down at Auburn, who, yeah, I mean, he put up amazing numbers in the SEC, but he's also more physically advanced. He's had those added years. And when you're looking at that, uh, you're kind of tracking the fact that, you know, one of the best indicator stats, and it's not really a stat, but one of the best indicators in general when you look at young players is age relative to level. So just about every single player who's a superstar in this league is probably two to three years younger than everyone else when they're in double A or triple A. Like they tend to move very, or if they're a college guy, they move very quickly. So there's that. And then the Guardians, they know what they do well. I think that's an important lesson they've learned. Certain things I talk about in the podcast, like 
since the drafting of Manny Ramirez, like their fifth best outfielder in terms of war is um, Ben Francisco, who player people may not remember. It's like Luke Scott is the greatest outfielder that they've developed in the last 25 years. For whatever reason, this team can't do outfielder. Stephen Kwan is currently sitting seventh and he's played, you know, a almost half a season. He's already the seventh best outfielder the last 30 years. So they've, they've leaned into pitching and they know what they can do with pitching, which is they can help players add more velocity, add more spin. They can help them work on their mechanics and they target programs that they know are poor. Like they will draft three to four guys from the same system because they know the development there is just not great. It's the same reason years ago they would target like the reds. They would, they would take a bunch of reds cast offs and see if they could get more out of them. They would go for, Padres players like if the Jose Ramirez extension hadn't happened 100% Mackenzie Gore is going to be a guardian like th there was a deal you know talking to people in San Diego the deal was in place but the extension happened so the deal didn't happen but they were targeting it's why they wanted Quantrell it's why they wanted Joey Cantillo who uh, you know is a deep guy but he last time I checked had the lowest hard hit percentage in all of double or triple A and he wasn't even protected on their 40 man at the end of the year because they had so many guys to protect because of injury. Uh, so they, they do a lot of age-based stuff, but like last year on draft day, I had a lot of people cause I've had the guardians run a very tight ship and I've had some success. And what I was telling people, uh, on draft day, it's like, look for the college pitcher because we have so much data on college guys. Now it almost makes it easier than it's ever been to find good college players. Cause you can look through that data. It's like, look for someone who has a walk rate under three, who's already missing bats. And then they feel like they can add more. Uh, now, they took Gavin Williams. You're not necessarily adding more to him. But if you go through the rest of the list, um, you know, Denholm, Tanner uh, Bybee, Jack Leftwich has looked like a different guy this year. They they just went through and took a bunch of guys that they they know what they do. They can draft up the middle contact types. Uh, and then they look for those guys who are already missing bats who maybe they can even add more to. Man, that is fascinating. I mean, that is really, really good stuff. So let me follow up with this. You know, the White Sox are often lauded for their success in the international market, but Cleveland's a sleeping giant in that category. I mean, they've been doing it for years. How do you express the way Cleveland has translated into success? Yeah, it's, you know, it's again kind of funny because like, so I started writing about the Guardians back in 07 as like a, a blogger and kind of worked my way through various things. And I remember sitting there like in those early days and we were like, okay, the last international, there was Victor Martinez and Rafty, Rafi Lefty, Rafi Perez. And it's like, that was, you had to, to get to five Latin American players who'd gotten to the big leagues and been successful. You had to go to like the eighties. This was in like 07. Uh, they were just so poor at it. And now it's interesting because they don't often go at the top of the market. Uh, they have not been the one who necessarily gets the big name, but they just, they're very good at identifying players. And then, you know, before we recording, the thing I talked about is like, maybe even more so than like identifying talent is they've been so good at identifying coaching and baseball minds. I talk about the Yankees and all of their success. Uh, you know, he's a humble brag that Matt Blake follows me on Twitter. You know, he's been following me since he's with the guardians. Now he's the Yankees pitching coach, but you know how much success with guys like Nestor Cortez is, is due to his influence the last two years or why did San Diego go out of their way to add Ruben Niebla? Uh, the next big star to follow in this system is Junior Batances, the double-A hitting coach. It's like uh, You look at what some of those guys are doing in double-A, some of just the complete changes to approaches. They've been able to distill a system where they look for, they look for it feels like, some specific tools in terms of like contact rate or you know ability c control. And I love prospect stuff. I always say that like the people who got me started on this were Jim Callis and John Sickles when no one else was doing this. And I remember going and I bought Sickles did a PDF on like why guys failed and went through like every single one of his top 100 prospect classes for, 
like 20 years. And it's like, why do hitters fail? If it's not injury, it's contact. Why do pitchers fail? If it's not injury, it's control issues. And it seems like on a very, very basic level, there's more to it than that. Uh, but it seems like the Guardians kind of identify that. And they're like, okay, we're looking for guys who have contact. We're looking at guys who control the ball and we can do more from there. And it's just things like um, on my own podcast, I had Hunter Gaddis on who may not, again, not the hugest prospect, but there's a lot of Eli Morgan to him. Not body size. They could not be diametrically more different. He's 6'6", 260, and Eli Morgan's like 5'8", a buck 25, it looks like. But this idea, too, of like knowing the Guardians are very home run prone, but they don't care. Like the you're going to have more positive outcomes if the ball is hit in the air than if it's on the ground. So they're going to encourage and target guys who put the ball in the air, even if it leads to more home runs, because in general, balls on the ground are going to lead to more positive outcomes for a hitter versus a pitcher. So they're looking very specifically targeting things. We know like pitchers, it's like, look for a slider in a three quarter slot. They're just starting to really get into this point where it is very specific traits they target. And with the international market, it's, it's almost never, it's interesting. Cause like last year they added a ton of guys, uh, John Kenzie Noel who's up the double a George Valera, who in my opinion is their top prospect. I know there's other players. I'm obviously blanking up like the big name in that class was Aaron Bracho and he's, it hasn't happened. So it's often not been their top guy. It's these other guys, but they're just, they seem to be identifying traits and then seeing if it'll pan out or if it won't. So Jeff, looking at this year's draft, they pick 16. There's a lot of potential options at 16 that we can get into, but they also pick 37, 54 and 92. So four of the top 100, pretty big bonus pool. What are your thoughts? What are you looking at it? At 16, what do you uh, think they're looking to do there and what would you do? So it's kind of a fun fact. And, you know, like the, what is it, approaching 60 years of the draft, the Guardians have never picked 16th before. This is their first time ever picking in that slot. They're still one of the few teams that's never picked first overall either. They, I think they're honestly sitting there and looking at what happened last year when like Freilich, McLean, and Watson all slid. I think they're kind of in a wait and pounce mode. Here's the thing. Like there were rumors right now, and I always take the rumors with a grain of salt because like nothing gets out. Nobody had them drafting Gavin Williams a year ago. Uh, a lot of people had them just naturally assuming on another infielder because they took Carson Tucker the year before that. So there is some talk in, about an underslot deal at their uh, Brandon Sprout from Florida, Jake Bennett, Oklahoma, maybe. I can't remember where he is, the lefty. But you know, I think they're just going to wait and see who slides. I think they're in a good position to get a sliding talent in terms of, you know, I think Drew Thorpe is a pitcher that would really kind of fit them later on in the draft as well with his control and command uh, data. And then the hope you can add more in terms of like contact rate guys. I, maybe this is me projecting cause he's like my guy in this draft. Uh, but Chandler Simpson, the shortstop from Georgia tech. When you look at hardest players to strike out in the country, the only players like in the top 25 from a major conference were John Kasevich from at Oregon, Luke Hancock, uh, and then Simpson. And Simpson was really good in the Northwoods League. He's doing fantastic right now in the Cape. I think he led college baseball in batting average. And, oh, yeah, he's got 80-grade speed. Now, he was pretty rough at shortstop, but you put him at center field with that speed, and you've got a guy with extreme contact rates, could walk. So there's no power at all. I mean, there, there's the negatives, but I just look at the positives when you look at that tool set. And I'm like, this is a guy who most people project on day two. And I'm like, I think he'll be a day two steal for the right team. And we know the Guardians love contact rate. Uh, so he and up the middle talent. So he could be one of those guys there. Uh, I was trying to think, like, I do think they're more likely to go college. Um, and I think last year, everyone kind of took the wrong lesson. They took, you know, they had 21 picks. 19 of them were pitchers and 19 of them were college players. 
but I think that was more about the depth of the draft. I would not be shocked at all to see them uh, go with a college bat, but I do think kind of sliding talent. And then I would keep my eyes open on catching. I think Cade Hunter is a guy who would interest them quite a bit. Um, He's not necessarily a first round guy, but more one of those guys to go. This organization has like no catching outside of Bo Naylor up and down. It's it's rough. Uh, so I think they might look to expand. I mean, they typically draft a catcher every year. They've just been really, really poor at developing them. Jeff Ellis joining us locked on Guardians podcast, an incredible resource for Guardians fans, those who follow the major league team, as well as the minor league organizations, the various Jeff, here's what I have to ask you before we let you go. Are the White Sox going to win this division, and do you take them seriously? I mean, I take them seriously. Maybe it's – I still like that lineup. Like, here's the thing. Like, if you had told me that Andrew Vaughn would, you know, kind of take that step forward this year, I would have thought they'd be running away with it. I understand that, like, there's issues with the team in general, uh, but it's like you guys have the pitching – that rotation when everyone's healthy is going to be the best in the division. I mean, Minnesota is on the, like they're, you know, they got like five guys on the disabled list from the starting staff. Like they are beat up. If you're the white Sox, and you know, we talked about again, you know, the pre-show stuff, you talked about the guys they may not add to their 40 man. Like when they made the deal last year where they traded Pilkington to the white, uh, to the guardians, because they knew they weren't going to add him. And they got Hernandez. It's like, if they can package some guys, get someone who can play second base and then just count on a few guys playing, more to expectations. Like, I think that's, that is still a lineup that scares me. I just get a few holes patched up. I don't think it's maybe, you know, I don't know how White Sox fans feel right now. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's been a rough year for all of you, but like, it's still on paper, the most talented team in the division. And I feel like you can find stop gaps at second. You can find things to help there and just counting on a little bit better health and a return to normalcy. And I don't know. I, I am more afraid of the, White Sox and I am the twins. I don't know if that's oh, what people that's expect, nice. but that's good to hear. I don't know. How, what's the, I, I mean, I know the general view has to just be extremely <laughs> pessimistic, <Jeff>. but it <laughs> is, it, it's miserable. I tell you what, following this ball club on a day-to-day basis is driving all of us insane because the roster first and foremost is not being managed to its fullest potential. Our general feeling, Jeff, is the organization I think is appropriately run, especially considering the restrictions that the owner places upon its staff, especially in the in the general manager's office. But really, what's the plays on the field? We're talking strictly what's happening on the field this season. Like the organizational structure, I think we're fans of draft philosophy lately under Mike Shirley has been encouraging. But right now with this big league club, they are underperforming and it first starts with the manager. So that's just us being pessimistic about what's yeah. going on in that front. The manager thing, to put nicely, seemed like a bad choice from day one. Um, you know, and that's just, that's my outside view. I don't know. Like, I, you ha- you guys have such a young, dynamic core of players, and uh, it's a fun team with fun personalities. And, like, you know, I still think, like, Grandel is a great signing. It, yeah, I know the health has been an issue, but I, Lewis, uh, I always get his, you know, it, so is it Robert? Or is it Robert? It's Robert. Luis Robert. Robert. So it is Robert. So with Robert, it's like he's a unicorn. Like I was trying to find Oscar Gonzalez, like comps with the ground ball rate and the walk to strikeout ratio. And the only player who has been consistently good offensively with that is, is him. Like he is a complete unicorn. You have someone that is unlike any player in baseball over the past few years. Like there's it's a as a fan of baseball, it's a fun team on paper. My outside perspective is like they need like a fresh start. It's I mean, 
even just that rotation. Like, I mean, Cease has been one of the great stories of this year. Uh, Kopak has been really fun to like, it is a fun mm-hmm. team. I just wish you guys, as someone who's a fan of baseball, I just wish you guys had a different manager. Yeah. Same, same here. All right, Jeff, as we talk about trades and, and as we let you go, we really appreciate mm-hmm. your time. I mean, Connor Pilkington uh, for Cesar Hernandez. I mean, it didn't work out for the White Sox. He was bad. He didn't start in the postseason. He used Larry Garcia, and now he signed a three-year deal. Thanks a lot for that, too, by the way. Jeff, yeah. I blame you for that. Um, Connor Pilkington, give us an update. So he's like, first, before I do that, I did you guys see the thing this year that the White Sox apparently had tried to get Clevenger, and it was for essentially that similar deal that they did for um, – for Kim Brow, that it was, uh, they had talked. Yeah, it was going to, it was going to be Dane Dunning and Nick Madrigal. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. But yeah, so Cesar has been, it was interesting because he was okay in Cleveland and the stats looked at him as being like unlucky. And then he was just awful. And he's not been very good uh, in Washington. Uh, Connor has been, he's a solid kind of quad A up and down type. He's had some nice starts where he's missed a lot of at-bats. He's kind of one of those guys I wonder like long-term if they might be better off seeing if he can play up a little bit in the pen. But he just, he gets in there and he keeps him competitive. And because we have had more double headers than I can recall, like in most like five-year, like they've had so many rainouts. It's unbelievable. Like in a five-year period, they haven't had as many rainout double headers as they've had this year. So he's gotten a lot of uh, opportunities. And uh, yeah, if you go look at the Savant data, uh, he's pitched enough to to you know to qualify, which is how much they've relied on him. And the data there is not great, but he does miss bats. That's the one thing that has stood out. Um, and he's been for a team. You look at their pitching depth, who they would have had if they hadn't made that trade. It's you know they traded for Tobias Myers, who's been so bad in AAA. Uh, he was a flyer guy. They released him today. And then they you know Peyton Beatonfield was another guy they got the deadline last year. He's really struggled so. Without Pilkington, it's really like I, they've used him and Kirk McCarty, and Kirk McCarty is definitely kind of more of a temporary filler type. Like if they didn't have Pilkington, they, the Guardians would probably be in trouble right now. Like he hasn't necessarily been great, but he's been about league average-ish, which, I mean, again, last year this is a team that gave a lot of starts to Sam Henches, who's been fantastic out of the pen, but was terrible as a starter, and J.C. Mejia, who was just, he went from A ball to starting in the big leagues. And because they didn't have any other choices and uh, Pilkington has just been nice in that regard that he keeps them afloat while we kind of wait, they have all that young talent, but they're just starting to hit kind of triple a right now. So he's, he's in some regards been like a glue, a perfect glue arm for them. So we talked a little bit about the guardians and their options right here before we let you go. You know, y- you have a, uh, a pretty solid track record of predicting the white Sox pick. They obviously don't pick until 26. I'm going to put you on the spot anyway, though. Who are the White Sox going to take at uh, number 26? The guy I've been kind of consistently mocking there who, you know, looking what they did last year is I feel like Tucker Toman. I know some people don't love the position, but it's like the son of a coach, the batting profile. Part of it is, I don't know, it, it, maybe it's lazy scouting to be like, he is not dissimilar from West Cath and uh, Montgomery from a year ago. But he's the guy that he's going to go somewhere in that top 30. And I feel like he fits there. That's... I see other people kind of leaning into maybe some college players, but I think that we might see another high school guy for them. And unless anything really jumps out at me for now, I he's kind of my go-to with that pick. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, that's, you know, that's who I've kind of had there. I, we heard a lot about Drew Gilbert early. I don't think he'll be there anyway, but I just college position player with where they are would, would really surprise me. I'm guessing 
prep bat or college pitcher. Um, and I, I haven't really been able to lock down which college pitcher. That wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, if I had to pick right now, I'd say Tolman as well. Jeff Ellis, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time discussing everything related to White Sox baseball and Guardians here at the Future Sox podcast. No, thank you. It's uh, it's always great to talk to you guys. It's always a lot of fun. So thanks for having me back on. That was Jeff Ellis of Lockdown Guardians at Jeff MLB Draft. I got to tell you, man, every time we learn about the Guardians, it makes me more and more frustrated that the White Sox are where they stand because it seems like Cleveland is somewhat around competitive, no matter the restrictions. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, everybody kind of knows, like I hated the Indians, like they ruined my childhood and now they're the Guardians and they're still trying to do the <laughs> same. But yeah, man, they're just good. It's a, that's a good front office and they don't, the owner, uh, the ownership group doesn't really spend, but they're great on the margins and they understand what they're good at. And, you know, they got a good manager and they develop pitching and yeah, they're, that's, that's a good team and it's a, and they're a little bit ahead of schedule. So you know, it's frustrating that they're in the Sox division, but, you know, the White Sox have the ability to spend a lot more money and it, it really shouldn't be that much of an issue. A lot of optimism from the division foes, though, those covering those teams and they they still think the White Sox are in it. Yeah, that that was interesting. Like they're all more more afraid of the White Sox than anybody else, I kind of feel like, which is interesting. So, you know, I mean, the White Sox have a lot of talent. Yeah, this is uh this was a really fun podcast, James, and and I'd love to get your opinion on how the White Sox can add or if they will add altogether because we know that July is going to be a huge month and as we end this podcast, to me, it seems like this White Sox team can still compete because of their starting rotation and if they go out and add another starter, maybe maybe we're talking about a little bit more optimistic feelings uh, as opposed to where we stand now at the beginning of July. But again, like this is a huge month and, and you've even talked about it. The next 25 days or so are going to be massive. Yeah, they play the Twins and Indians a lot. They have a lot of division games. I think it's 19 coming up. That should determine uh, quite a bit where they stand. I think they probably are buyers regardless just because like Tony Lewis is here to like try to win. So I think they'll try to do that. It'll just depend on what they try to do like if they get a starter like is it a you know is it a rental or is it a guy with control my guess is pretty big time left-handed reliever they need I think they need a left-handed bat I just don't know where that guy would play so yeah I, I mean it should be interesting I don't expect many trade talks until after the amateur draft you know just because and then there's I think what the deadline is like August 2nd or something this year so it should really ramp up after uh, teams come back from the all-star break that's James Fox. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We have weekly episodes dropping every Tuesday. So thanks so much for following and being a part of this with us. White Sox season coming down to potentially the last 20 days here in July. We got the draft coming up on July 17th. Stay tuned to at Future Sox on Twitter as well as at Sox Machine, SoxMachine.com because James Fox, Josh Nelson, and Jim Margulis will be following the draft by doing live Twitter spaces the day of the draft, which is July 17th. So stay tuned for that. But also we post everything there to get all your information. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all next week.